Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Guided by its belief that your buildings have a purpose, today's guest's company has been making buildings smarter since the year 1885. 1885, that's 137 years ago. The company says that it is the world's largest portfolio of building products, technologies, software, and services, and that they are used to transform the environments in which we live, work, learn, and play. My name is Matt Kirkner. I am the host of the Tech Ed Podcast, and today we are going to live, work, learn, and play with that company's vice president and chief financial officer. The company is Johnson Controls Incorporated, and our guest is Mark Van Diepenbeck. Mark, welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast. Hey, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. So your company is really well known, I think, to a number of the members of our audience, Mark. But for those who may not be completely familiar with Johnson Controls, Tell us a little bit about the company. So we're a, a global leader in, in building solutions. So that, that's a whole bunch of big words. But what we do is we uh, install and service a whole array of building solution systems, such as the HVAC, you know, heating, ventilation, cooling uh, of a building. We have all of the building automation and controls that goes around that as well. We offer a whole array of security solutions whether it's access or video cameras or things of that nature. A lot around fire, fire detection, fire suppression. We have an industrial refrigeration. We do some uh, retail solution around security of uh, an inventory management of, uh, of retail businesses. And we do a lot of things around sustainability and energy management. And then on top of all of that, we have kind of a digital solution offering that wraps around all of those all of those services but that's how we we, we can call ourselves really a, a complete portfolio of solutions for uh, you know for the modern day buildings a full spectrum indeed HVAC security industrial refrigeration we're getting we're looking forward to getting into this discussion around digitization and controls and data I know we'll talk about that today before we get into that mark you know a, a large percentage of our audience is is comprised of educators people working in the education space whether that's k12 uh, higher education and so on so I know that that's a big part of your product portfolio as well how do your products help create safer and more efficient learning environments for students yeah, we have a very big, especially K through 12, as well as university, very big offering and very big presence in those markets. And it's really through, first of all, our HVAC solutions, but also our security service and everything that, that evolves around the fire detection and fire suppression. One of the, you know, big landmark uh, transactions that you see us doing is often also around sustainability, where we're able to um, go and retrofit a whole bunch of a fairly old infrastructure. And what you see in the K through 12 markets is that there's a tendency to hang on to that whole infrastructure for a very long time until it becomes extremely expensive to operate or manage. And then we can come in and retrofit a whole lot of uh, equipment through that, generate actually energy savings that can pay for a lot of the investment that has been made. And that's where we we really bring a differentiated offering. And you build those relationships with those 
schools and universities, and you get into uh, really created an environment that's uh, safe, secure, and also healthy. We have indoor air quality uh, system uh, that allow to, you know, clean the air in the classrooms, in the hallway, allowing kind of the environment, especially in the world we're living in right now, uh, post-pandemic, create a, a holistic environment that's really uh, safe for the kids and for the students. You know, one of the things that you just mentioned, Mark, that kind of caught my ear is this whole idea of renovating a space that maybe hasn't been renovated in years. I mean, we have school buildings all over the country here in the United States that, that in some cases have been around for, you know, close to a century, in some cases, maybe even more. So renovating those in a way that you reduce the cost of operating that building in a fashion that pays back that investment, which is really, really a fascinating angle. I'm sure in your role, you spend a lot of time thinking about ROI on the corporate side, certainly ROI in the, in the government side and the education side, ROI meaning return on investment, incredibly important, which speaks in part to your role as chief financial officer and vice president of Johnson Controls, Mark. I'll be honest, a lot of the folks that we have here on the Tech Ed Podcast as our guests come from the technical side, maybe the education side. Uh, one of my dirty little secrets is that I actually have a background in, in accounting and finance myself. That's where I started my uh, career. And, and as much as I spend most of my time now on the technology and engineering side of the world, I, you know, you and I would probably share some great stories about coming up on the on the financial side of the business. So tell our audience, what's a typical day for you? Yeah, great question. So, so if you think about the, the role of the CFOs, and let's first talk about how the organization is, is set up, right? You have a, a, an executive CFO at the top, which is the public officer, my boss. And then he has generally reporting to him what we call segment uh, CFO, because the company is uh, about $25 billion in size. And there's people that uh, need to uh, manage the different component or product line, if you'd like, of, of the company. And JCI has about uh, four segments, but that they can categorize in two kind of different aspects. Or a global products team, the manufacturing, uh, the guys that actually make uh, the stuff. And then you have the field team that is uh, distributed geographically. And that's the team, that field team, that actually takes the stuff that the, the products team has, uh, has manufactured and we install it for customer. We combine them uh, as solutions uh, and then we service them uh, over the life of that equipment. And so that's why it's, it's really called the field team. The, the role of a, of a division CFO, of a segment CFO, whatever you want to call it, it, it is really twofold. Uh, first of all is you got to become a, a partner to the operations. Uh, a CFO that purely reports the number, and that's obviously part of, of the job, and that's part of the, the basic. But if you stop at that, you're going to have really hard time, A, helping the operations making the right uh, decision, but also B, you're not going to make a big impact in the organization at the end of the day. So the ability to combine uh, kind of some financial acumen with uh, some operational skills uh, allows you to kind of become a good partner to the business uh, and help them make the, the right decision. And then one of the most important part of a role of, a, of a, a leader in a company of the size of Johnson Controls is how we spend our time. Um, um, deciding where we don't spend our time, decide where we spend our time. And one of the best way to kind of measure how to spend your time is really focusing on what from a return standpoint, what from a profitability standpoint, what from a growth standpoint are the areas that are going to matter the most and help continue, propel, and grow the company uh, in a profitable manner. And you manage those two things 
the growth and strategy and the operational financial support. That's kind of uh, what you do on a daily basis. And uh, the rest will uh, hopefully come more easily once those two things are kind of covered. I think that's a really healthy way of looking at a role like yours, Mark, you know, is being partner to the operations. Uh, you know, I think as we think about operationalizing the the financial aspects of, of accounting, the financial aspects of, of business operations, you know, it really requires you to think a lot, not just about the numbers and about the data, but also thinking about the technology that's incumbent in an organization like yours. JCI, in so many ways, is a technology and data company, even though you're, you know, people may think of you as a building products company or a building controls company, that technology, that data is really, really important. How do you, in a role as CFO, stay current on developments and innovation in broader technology markets and is doing so important in a role like yours? So staying connected with, you know, the latest development in, in product and in solution and offering we have is extremely important, but it's almost a table stake at some stage because what comes with what we're seeing in our, in our markets, uh, a really digitization of all of the offering, it, it creates a whole new way to look at the value offering, the pricing, how do you actually market and bring together a value proposition to the customer and the role of finance in that decision-making process is is extremely important. It's important not just because you need to understand your cost accumulation. Uh, Digital has a whole new kind of, uh, you know, cost accumulation to it. You spend a lot of money up front developing a solution and then you're hoping that your ongoing, you know, maintenance and the software licenses is cheaper. But how do you get that return and how do you find a balance, especially in a market like the market we're in, where it's all about construction. So it's always been about big physical stuff that need hardwire and piping and complex crane that move around. And now you're talking about making half of that smart to be able to actually reduce the number of piping and cranes and everything that comes around with it. That whole value offering um, and how the finance team can help frame the conversation is extremely important. Again, you got to really understand what what the new offering is. And and the best way to do that is partnering with the operation and talking to people, uh, walking the the hallways and understanding why are we uh, creating those new offerings and how the customers are are impacted by, uh, by what we do. My experience on the manufacturing side, we used to call it going to the Gemba as a lean tool or a lean term is getting out where the action is, getting out where decisions are being made, getting close to the operation, staying close to the organization. A company like yours doesn't last 137 years without evolving with the times, right? Technology in 1885 was a lot different than it is here in the year 2022. And as digitization, as data and other advancing technologies become more and more a part of your value proposition, staying connected to that, whether you're the chief operating officer, or the chief engineer, or the chief financial officer, really, really important. Here on the Tech Ed podcast, we talk about a lot of these technologies. We're, we're really hooked on big data. We talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, the IoT. All of these are transforming the world of manufacturing, and the same is happening in the building control space. So tell us about how that space specifically is, is transforming, Mark. So great question. And, and really, there's a lot going on in our industry between, you know, you hear a lot about digital twin and how we're trying to replicate in the cloud every single large piece of equipment that is, you know, part of a building being able to monitor it and get full predictive analytics around how those uh, piece of equipment are working. Uh, that's one part of the value stream. But 
a lot of things that that you can see value directly is everything around um, connected products, products that we've sold probably for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, maybe 100 years, that are now becoming smarter and connected. It's, you know, the whole world of IoT. The problem is a lot of noise in this, and, and you need to kind of bring that noise to rest and bring everything together under, uh, under one single kind of solution where you can connect the different uh, intelligence, the different type of information you receive from the different parts of the building and help making sense of it and allow the building owner or the building manager to make decisions uh, based on that information coming in uh, from those different either sensor or smart devices. That's our open blue solution. It's kind of a, an all encapsulating solution that really allows you to get to that goal, that dream of really the smart building, the way we're thinking about it in, in, in sci-fi movie, but we're very close to it, um, especially a company like ours that has the ability to control something like, you know, the security uh, access system. So we know how many people are in the building that can influence the amount of heating or cooling you want to do that may decide the type of, you know, lighting you may want to get started if uh, people are getting in the building. And that at the end of the day allows you to, um, and allows a lot of company to reduce the energy usage and hopefully getting into a more sustainable environment, whether it's a, an office, a, a hotel or a commercial facility, an industrial or a school like we talked about, uh, being able to have that uh, kind of sustainable package all together with, you know, um, not only the energy supply side, but all of the demand side that our smart offering can bring. We're, that, that, that industry is really transforming itself right now. The demand for that kind of solution is, is really there. It's all about being able to bring it together and, and start getting everything, uh, the attractiveness, if you like, of those, uh, of those offerings to the, the front end of, uh, of the customer mindset when they build or when they renovate a new facility. You know, one of the reasons I was really looking forward to this episode, Mark, is that, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the world of manufacturing and advanced manufacturing and industry 4.0. And, and one of the points that we like to drive home is, look, this technology isn't just transforming manufacturing. It is transforming every corner of our economy. And so when people start thinking about the homes in which they live, where they go to school, where they do business, where they work, that same technology that's transforming manufacturing and some of the words that you just used were music to my ears. Love the whole idea of a, of a digital twin, um, the cloud, connected products, smart technology. So really affecting every single space within our economy. And so it's been fun to explore this on the building side of things with you. I also want to talk a little bit about how data is affecting the financial side of business. How do these technologies manifest themselves in that part of Johnson Controls? And if there's like a really cool example that comes to mind of how you're using data and how you're using smart technology on the financial side that you could share with us, that would be really interesting to me. Absolutely. So there's really two things that are two big drivers in technology that are changing everything. It's big data. We're now forming those massive data lake, a company of our size with millions of customers and thousands of transactions on a daily basis you quickly get overwhelmed by the size of the information. And also that information is in 50 different places within the organization. Being able to bring that all together into one single data set and actually run very smart analysis um, right around that, being able to predict better how you 
financial performance actually is going to go based on what you're seeing in the supply chain, what you're seeing in the order, the value of those order, the type of customer you're also going to uh, interact with. All of that is part of really the smart analytics, taking everything that we call FP&A, financial planning analysis, to the next level, being able to actually create some level of real market intelligence based on data and based on fact set. And then the other thing is everything that relates to, uh, to RPAs, uh, robotic process automation. Really, the goal there is there's a lot of uh, repetitive tasks that are not very value-added but require to happen. Uh, either it's to move data from one system to the next, uh, getting online and getting some coding information and putting it in some tools, things that we have a lot of people doing and manually uh, executing those tasks where you can actually have robots, uh, RPAs literally running in the background and doing those activities at a much lower cost in a way that people can finally spend time on the value-added part of finance and not the, I need to key in the 50 you know, pages of invoice that I've received manually because you know, supplier ABC does not, uh, does not provide uh, an electronic form of, of billing. So all of those automations are, are really starting to ramp up uh, and we're still really starting to see the value uh, of uh, of those changes in the way we operate as a finance organization. Yeah, echoing some themes that are really interesting to me, Mark, the whole idea of big data and, you know, the quote that I saw not too long ago is that we'll create more data in the next three years than we have in the last 30 years put together, which is just kind of, you know, kind of blows your mind when you think about the amount of data. Then I think you make an interesting point about, you know, a lot of times this data can be disparate. So it's existing in different parts of our organization and something that might be happening on one end of the organization where we have data could be affecting something that's happening on the other end and making sure that we're connecting those and, and gleaning the right insights out of that data. And then the whole idea of robotic process automation. And, you know, it's it's interesting when a lot of times on the manufacturing side, we would get questions about, well, are the robots going to take all the jobs away? We don't get those questions anymore because the truth of the matter is nobody can find enough people. And so the, the fact of the matter is, in many cases, we're automating not to eliminate jobs, but because we can't find people to fill them. And then to your point, you take somebody who's doing maybe a you know, a manual, somewhat mundane job and put them in a job that's way more interesting uh, where they can add additional value. So I think those are two really, really interesting trends that, that you highlight there. You know, I continue to be fascinated by the process automation side on the on the business side of an organization. Again, if we've got members of our audience that are familiar with automating a process in a manufacturing plant, same thing can happen in an administrative function and a financial function and an accounting function, and it is. So we're automating in, in your world in the same way that we're automating on the manufacturing side. I want to talk about that automation on the manufacturing side, though, for just a moment. You know, you're responsible for the financial aspects of JCI, and you probably have somewhat of a front seat to some of the automation procurement decisions. What can you tell about how automation is transforming your operations? It's really bringing uh, a lot of value, especially, for example, you were mentioning procurement. When it's time to make decisions as where we buy and how we buy, especially in a world where supply is limited, you get a whole new level of visibility into the inventory of your suppliers and being able to actually create those arbitrage and being able to, to, to buy smart and it's actually part of the process we use, being able to get ahead of some of those issues and plan around it. But it's really around forecasting you know, future demand and being able on the back end to then pass that on to your supply chain and be able to be ahead of uh, the curve and be able to tell them, that's what I'm expecting I'm going to need. 
be ready. You know, I gave a speech in Orlando a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about, I made 11 predictions for how the IoT, how Industry 4.0 was going to transfer global manufacturing operations. And one of the 11 items that I had on that list was exactly what you just said, which is this idea to use the huge data sets that we have and our ability to communicate across enterprises to forecast future demand. I'm just a huge believer that the companies that figure out how to do that will drive so much waste out of their supply chain. If I know exactly how much to buy, how much to produce, when to order, how long it's going to take. And now with the advent of artificial intelligence and blockchain technology, we're going to see more and more of that. So I think that's a, that's a really interesting response to that question. Yeah. And, and I also think and a large part, not just of the industry we're in, but if you look at what's happening in the automotive industry, like the global supply chain was very interesting. A, a lot was operating around, you know, a build to stock or a Kanban kind of a kind of model, uh, which, you know, for the better part of the last 30, 40 years worked work very well. And if that wasn't the model, that was kind of just in time automotive manufacturing, you know, GCI used to have a very large automotive manufacturing business that we spun off a few years ago, but JIT facilities, just-in-time facilities, very big, uh, complex, connected uh, manufacturing with the customer where we would literally get by the second demand from the OEMs on what they were uh, going to bring down the line and the type of seat or the type of panel we had to manufacture and get lined up. I think that world, in the world we're living in, where supply chain and labor are constrained, I think is, I don't know if it's over forever, but I think it's it's going to be over for at least the next couple of years. And seeing that transformation where now everybody needs to start managing things really from a more traditional sales and demand operation, like your traditional SIOP type of model, and, and really start getting all of the demand signal, all of the supply signal, and try and, and plan their manufacturing cadence, not just to build to stock with some reserve, but really precisely because you don't have the luxury to do that. I think. I think we'll really transform the global supply chain. And hopefully, and we'll see how that, that pans out. But I think it's going to make for a healthier global supply chain long term and create less wastage and less arbitrage that often existed in supply and demand in, in, in different parts of the economy. These are the kind of things that I spend a lot of time thinking about, to be quite honest with you. And I, you know, I grew up, I grew up through the the advent of Kanban, at least here in the United States, they were doing it elsewhere, particularly in Japan in my early days of manufacturing, but really through that whole continuous improvement, lean Six Sigma application here in the United States and watching Kanban systems. And they worked well, right? For our audience who may not be familiar, it's a lean tool where you basically create a pull system. So you produce a, an order signal when you utilize inventory. And, and what that resulted in, to, to your point, Mark, is that we really drew down work and process inventory finished goods inventory. We, we drew down raw materials inventory in many cases in a good way. It, it allowed us to drive a lot of the waste out of inventory. But right now we're living through kind of the other end of that right now where, where you don't have any inventory to make up the difference. And so some of the companies that I'm involved with, it's been interesting watching them talk about now building up huge amounts of inventory so that they don't get burned again. Sometimes you wonder if maybe we're not heading in the other direction. We'll see, but, but watching that balance out but and, and then using some of these tools we've been talking about, big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on to better manage the supply chain. It's going to be a fun place to be here over the course of the next several years, I think. Really, really interesting. 
It is exciting, honestly. It's it's it is exciting, and it's a part of of the industrial world that hadn't changed a lot over the last you know 20, 30 years. That is now really moving in a different pace. It's it's very exciting, and you know, I was describing. I, I cover the field business uh, for Johnson Controls, and that level of supply chains become even more complicated because in a plant you manufacture, you know, you manage your you, you own supply chain and then labor and you get those two things and you get productivity going and, and you're in a good spot, right? The challenge in a field business is we got to manage our own supply chain with our own manufacturing team. We got to manage supply chain of third-party vendors because we don't manufacture every single component that goes into the solutions we sell. We got to manage, I'm sorry, the, the subcontractor supply chain and their availability of labor, our availability of labor. And then you have our customer supply chain because what often happens is there's shortage of wood or concrete or rebar, whatever that might be, that now slows down the basic elements that were used to be, you know, working like clockwork in the construction world. Well, now it's delayed three, six months and you got to be, able to manage those three or four different supply chains at the same time creates huge challenges, but also great opportunities for the company. Challenges and opportunities, both. One of the things that I've been reflecting on quite a bit is that the the challenges in the supply chain today is in as much as you know those of us who worked inside of, in your case, construction, building controls, and so on, the, the field services, field team part of your organization, in my case, in manufacturing, in some ways, we were taken for granted by the rest of the world, right? When you can get what you want, when you want it at a price that you think is reasonable to pay for it, it's easy to kind of forget that, that people like you and, I, you and I exist out there. And, and if there's one, maybe a little bit of a, uh, of a silver lining to some of the challenges is that there's now a tremendous amount of appreciation for the value that people like you bring to the economy, not just here in the United States, but around the globe. And it's on that topic of global competitiveness and talent, Mark, that I want to talk now a little bit. Our audience may not know. They know I'm in Southeastern Wisconsin. You're a Southeastern Wisconsin person now as well. And people listening to the uh, to the podcast probably know that you're not originally from Southeast Wisconsin. You're originally from Belgium. Um, we have a global audience, but more than half of our listeners are right here in the United States. So one of the things I'd be curious about is as you find your way around the United States and kind of looking at the, the climates for technology and innovation and investment, and research and development here, you've got a, an interesting window into the, the global world for those topics as well. So how would you compare and contrast what's going on here in the United States in those areas versus other regions around the globe? And are there things that we should be thinking about here doing differently based on things that you've learned elsewhere? So let me start first with the positive. Uh, so I, I started working you know, in the late 90s, uh, my first job in, you know, in college and all, all around technology startups. Um, you know, it was the big boom of of the dot com, and it hadn't blown yet, but it was was really big in in, in Belgium and in Europe as well. And the, the good part of how the U.S. legal system operates, if if uh, you start your own business and uh, you take a lot of risk and it ends up not panning out, you could be at a financial loss. But there's good rules uh, and regulation around that that kind of protect you and you can uh, move on and get past the failure. And innovation requires a lot of failure. Uh, we all hear about the, the cool big startup that made it, you know, 
big, the Facebook of the world and the Googles and the Instagram and all of the great successful company. But for one of those successful companies, I don't know what the number is, it was probably a hundred thousand failed uh, company. I come from Belgium. I come from a, a country where when, when you uh, start a company and you go through the bankruptcy process because the, the system didn't work out, it's an extremely painful process. Uh, it's very costly personally. It, it creates a whole uh, series of personal issues, even though it's entirely business model. And so that risk-taking is still there, but it's a little bit cushioned by the amount of, of capital risk people personally are taking as they, uh, as they venture there. So I would say that's one of the big advantages the U.S. has, and I think that's why we've seen so much you know, innovation and creativity over the last 20, 30 years coming out of the U.S. And where I think there's area of improvement is really around the amount of innovation research that goes into our schools and universities. You know, when I was school 25 years ago, um, there was an enormous amount of, of research money that was really being pulled at taking a chance on technology that may never go anywhere. But then when they were going somewhere, there was always a way to take that to the next level out of the school. I feel like that level of inefficient fund allocation because it's impossible right off the bat to know which technology is really going to play out has died down a little bit here in the US. And most of it is coming from the, uh, uh, from the private side of the, of the equation, which is, you know, it's working well. The problem is that means most of the money goes to the bets that have the biggest chance to uh, succeed. And a lot of those investments are going to kind of 2.0 replicas of success stories, you know, of other segments of the economy. Um, less around on the fringe of really riskier, I would say, uh, part of the economy. And whether that might be biotechnology or or even breakthrough artificial intelligence and the like, I, I, I think a more risk approach uh, to those type of investment, I would say at, you know, at the college funding university level type of way, uh, could actually unleash a whole new level of innovation in the country that could create a, another spell of growth that, that could really transform the economy here. So uh, both a reminder and a bit of a wake-up call. I think you're right. We talked a minute ago about things that we take for granted here in the U.S. One of them is probably the you know the price of failure when we take risk. And, and it really is mitigated in a lot of ways by whether it's our bankruptcy laws or receivership laws or other, other ways of protecting risk-taking and innovation and not that it should be wanton or unplanned or or reckless, but that if you do take a risk and for whatever reason, it wasn't quite perfect, it didn't quite work out, at least there's a safety net there for you and you're not going to ruin the next 10 or 20 years of your life on the business side trying to recover for that, which in turn is going to just foster more innovation, more creativity and more risk-taking, which I think is great. And then the other one, and you're not the first one to mention this on the podcast, Mark, this idea that we need to make sure that our universities are as active as they possibly can be and others, but universities, research universities in innovating new technologies. But you're exactly right. We need more and more of that. So I think that was a really astute observation. I appreciate your, your thoughts on that. Kind of continuing on this topic around talent and global competitiveness, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about the lack of skilled talent in areas like advanced manufacturing, engineering, and STEM. You know, we, we have so many educators that listen to this podcast, Mark. I want you to share a message with our educators, if you would. You know, if, as you think about creating that next generation of talent for a company like yours, how can they best prepare a student to work at an innovative company like JCI? What would that advice be? So the, the first advice would be, you know, try and, and really 
create a mindset of critical thinking. Be being able to look at a problem uh, or look at a statement and being able to be your own judge of whether that makes sense and, and is there a better way to, to get around that? That is so hard to build a mindset that, that creates that. You can be the best technical, whatever you want to be. If you don't have that critical thinking mindset, you are going to make so many mistakes and you're not going to be able to self-reflect on your mistake, but also you're not going to be able to see the challenge ahead and start looking around corners because you know there's always going to be issues. Right? Then the other thing I would mention, and I, I've often said that as I talk to more junior people joining the company, you get to instill in those kids' mind the fact that at least in the first 15 years of their career, they got to say yes and take risk. Somebody comes and says, you want to try to do something? Don't think over it for three hours wondering if you are technically good at it, if, if it's going to be too hard, you've never done this before. Like, just say yes. If somebody is taking the risk to come and ask you, they see something in you, take the risk. Take the risk. And you know what? It doesn't work. We all have failures. Believe me, like all of us have failed massively over and over again. But there is a little bit that, that perspective now that we have a really strong global education system where people hyper-specialize themselves. There's a little bit of a, a tendency of, okay, that's my swim lane. And, and you know, for the next 10 years, I'm going to become the best accountant I can be, the best mechanical, you know, engineer I can be. And you know what I mean? And people get really focused on that swim lane and, and kind of probably miss on a lot of opportunities that would grow them as individual. And probably in that particular field, they want to be best at. If they had perspective from the outside, they would be even better at it. So, so I, think, I think those are the two elements uh, that I would suggest. That was fantastic. The idea of saying yes and taking risk, that is just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal advice. And then, of course, this whole mindset of critical thinking. So for our educators, as you're preparing that next generation of talent, whether they're going into the world of finance, into the world of engineering, or wherever it is that their pathway leads them, create a mindset of critical thinking, say yes, and take risk. Make sure that your students understand the importance of saying yes and taking risk. And we're going to wrap up with one final question, Mark, and it's a question that we ask every single guest here on the Tech Ed Podcast. And that is thinking about that student who at some point in the future will have to say yes and take risk as that student is a high school sophomore and they're considering their future pathway. What is that piece of advice that you would offer to that student? Outside of saying yes, obviously, because that's the biggest advice I would give them. I think, and especially if you self-reflect on, you know, for me, the last, you know, 35 years or so, uh, 30 years when, when I was in that spot is everybody around you, including yourself, has incredible potential. And you don't realize your own potential right now because you're in that tiny little universe of just the people you know and just the world you know and just open up your mind don't be scared say yes be a critical thinker but also just assume that you know you have all of the opportunities in the universe for you and in reality you're not going to have all of the opportunities but if your mindset is that way you're going to see opportunities that others don't and the difference between you know, people that are more successful in their career and less successful, you know, I don't think one is smarter than the other one. I don't think one is luckier than the other one. It's more 
the mindset. People are willing to take a lot of risk. And again, you're going to fail multiple times over. You're just going to have to accept it and move on and keep on looking at those opportunities. So, you know, uh, the world is yours. Just, just, just take a chance. Yeah, outstanding advice. Open up your mind. Don't be scared. Say yes, and you will open up your eyes to those opportunities. One of the opportunities I'm thankful for, Mark, is the opportunity to have you on the Tech Ed Podcast. This has been just a, a really, really interesting discussion, free-flowing, open. Your candor and, and your way of thinking is really refreshing, and I really appreciate you being with us. No, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.